What people never tell you is if you cold apply, you're put into a pool with everybody else. But if you just know somebody on the inside, that now puts you into an internal referral pool for you to now be like bumped up in terms of like a recruiter actually, you know, reaching out to you about a job opportunity. You're listening to the UI Narrative Podcast, the bi-weekly podcast that shares how industry-leading designers got started in interface design and how they create successful user-centered experiences. And I'm your host, Tolu Ajayi. Let's get started. Guys, I have a special guest that I've been planning with for a couple months to get on this podcast for you all. Um, So here's a couple things that you should know about her. Jen Cotton is a San Francisco-based designer who loves problem-solving, storytelling, and systems designs. She is about to start a new role as a staff designer at Google Nest, focused on cross-device design. Previously, she worked as a designer at Amazon, Twitter, and New York Magazine. She also led Twitter's diversity in UX group and is passionate about diversity and inclusion in tech. When Jen is not designing digital products, she's either making or teaching ceramics at Mission Clay Studios or Clayroom SF. Jen earned a Master's of Fine Arts degree in Design and Technology from Parsons School for Design and a Bachelor's of Arts degree in International Relations and Creative Writing. I want you all to give a very warm welcome to Jen Cotton. Thank you so much for joining us on the UI Narrative Podcast. Thank you for having me. I am super excited. You really are like doing quite a hustle here and <laughs> I am here to support in any way possible. So Thank you. Thank you. So Jen, let's get into your narrative. You currently stay, are you in San Fran right now or where are you at? Yeah. So I moved out to San Francisco from New York um, seven years ago now. Um, to come work for Twitter. And so I moved into the city because I was moving from New York and I thought I needed a city. Um, You know, San Francisco is a smaller scale version of New York for sure. Um, But I'm based in the city and that's where I've been working. So pretty awesome out here. Cool. So where did you grow up? Um, What was that like? Yeah, so I grew up all over. Um, I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. Really? Yeah. Uh, My mom and dad met in Texas, and that's where my sister and I were born and lived until I was about four or five. Um, And then I moved to Sacramento um, after that and went to um, elementary and uh, middle school there. And then I actually went to boarding school for high school, which I like to say was by choice. I was taught boarding school, um, which is kind of a thing in California. Usually, you know, it's not like the East Coast where there are a million boarding schools. Um, And so I went to school at the Webb Schools, which is in uh, Claremont in Southern California. Um, And then from there, moved out, went to college in D.C., um, and then did uh, my grad school and, you know, um, professional work in New York as well. So it's really funny whenever people are like, where are you from? I'm always like, well, <laughs> you've been all over Dallas, uh, Dallas Sacramento, LA. <laughs> yeah. so. so you went to college for art and design, but was design always a passion of yours? Or when did you know that design was a path you wanted to take? I was just talking to my friend who's a designer and he had gone to 
um, design school immediately after high school. And I was like, well, how did you know? Because as a high school person, I didn't even know design was a thing. And he was telling me, oh, well, I was just always like good at comics and drawing. And I was like, yeah, I was the editor in chief of my yearbook. Like, why did nobody tell me design was a possible profession? Um, and so I thought I wanted to go into the foreign service. And so I went into, um, I went to the Elliott School at George Washington um, because it was an awesome international affairs school. And so I had no idea that I wanted to do design, even though I had all the like classic signs, like, like I mentioned, you know, yearbook and, you know, doing art and doing ceramics as a kid. My first job out of college was at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And um, when I was there, it was 2005, and the CBCF had a bunch of programs that were tailored around um, predatory lending and black home ownership, which was awesome, but it was also during a time where there was intense predatory lending. And so part of my job was to answer calls, and, you know, someone would call and say, like, oh, Congressman Jeffers, like, told me to call, and, you know, I'm being foreclosed on and it was really depressing and I wasn't really that passionate about it. So I quit my job five months out. I quit working at the CBCF and um, my former manager at the time, Kenya Covington, shout out to her, called me back two weeks after and was like, what if we hired you back as a design consultant? Um, because I'd been doing their e-newsletter and doing one-off flyers and stuff. We hired you as a design consultant. You wouldn't have to come into the office because part of, you know, young Jen did not like going to her desk job and we'll pay you more. And I was like, what? This is a thing? <laughs> and so it really got me into like design freelancing, what I had done for a while while I like bartended and served. Um, and so I got into like professional design rather casually and then once I realized, oh, this is actually something I'm pretty passionate about, I was like, I want to work in tech and had started at a photo video uploading service in the MySpace days. We were like a competitor to Photo Bucket and Slide, and we got acquired by Scripps Media, um, which they own HGTV and Food Network, and, and we were their user-generated content division. And that was like my first startup and tech acquisition kind of thing. And just slowly after that, I realized, A, I wanted to be formally trained in design. And so I, was, I applied to 11 different graduate schools and Parsons was the only one that accepted me. So, you know, like just fortunate that the one came through, but the one that came through was like really the best opportunity for me in terms of moving to New York and meeting all of the designers and artists and creative computation people um, and really getting me immersed into kind of like a world larger than this small DC design and nonprofit scene that I had been a part of um, after I graduated my undergrad. And so I always like to tell um, young graduates, like, A, your career could change like eight times <laughs> before you hit 30. Um, and B, like, it's a long and winding road. And even, you know, before... I ended up at New York Magazine in New York after I graduated from grad school. I had worked at like 
a small startup. I had worked at a web design agency. I had done freelancing and consulting. You know, I had done like a design version of like the Peace Corps where George Soros has this institute where he sends people abroad so that they can help use their design skills to, you know, help nonprofits abroad. And so I'd done such a range of different design things that I feel like it helped me actually understand what kind of design I was interested in Mm -hmm. and what art of design I wanted to do and what my strengths were within design, what size company I was comfortable at, like a small startup was not a conducive environment for me. Um, And so, yeah, I just feel like um, even though at the time I really struggled with like what is happening here with my career and where will this ever go? Like looking back now, I feel so fortunate to have done so many different things and taken so many different chances, um, especially while I was young. So I could really figure out what I wanted to do rather than just being like, oh, well, you know, my mom or dad says I'm going to do this. And so I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering when you had went to college, did you know about UX design before it was something talked about in classes because you got experience from being like being a design consultant and working at different companies before, you know, you actually went to college. So I'm just wondering like how you got introduced into UX design. UX design wasn't even a thing. I had an old, I had a coworker at my last job tell me, Jen, you know, you're an old designer because you have the term web designer on your LinkedIn, which (laughs) he meant as like a fun joke. (laughs) You know, we were very we're very close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but UX design wasn't even a thing, really. Like, when I think back, there were, I got into digital design just because I was typically, I was like the young person at the company who knew how to do any programming. And so I remember at the CBCF, like, sending out the e-newsletter, like, I didn't hand code that e-newsletter. I used macromedia dreamweaver and like divs all over the place (laughs) and you know was just dropping in images but using classic graphic design stuff that I'd known from like yearbook and putting that whole thing together I feel like web design was starting to become like a thing that more than just companies out in San Francisco were hiring from. And I'd say that's probably the biggest difference for me. If I had been in 2005 San Francisco, I'm sure I probably could have found jobs that were called like UX designer or interaction design, Mm -hmm. which is what we were called back then. Um, But in DC, which is such a like um, government nonprofit kind of space or it was at the time now there's such a booming like tech scene there knowing that UX design was a thing wasn't a wasn't even a thing so even when I applied to schools a lot of programs that I was applying to were still traditional graphic design programs Um, Parsons was the only true digital program that I applied to and um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago let you tailor what kind of program you wanted So you could make it more like digital or what they called multimedia design at the time. Um, But it was still like, I feel like I came up with the profession of UX design. Whereas like now, you know, Stanford's number two major outside of computer science is product design. Hmm. And that like blows my mind. I was like, that was not even a thing you could major in uh, when I was even in undergrad. 
Yeah, it's amazing, like, the progress of how well-defined UX design is now compared to back then. You've held various positions in your career so far, and I want to start at the beginning. You went from designer to web designer and then interaction designer to product designer and experience lead, and we'll get into your current role coming up soon. Um, But first, I want to talk about those transitions. When you first started working fresh out of college, did you know exactly that you wanted to get into interaction design or was it from a certain experience that you had? Tell us a little bit about that. After graduate school, I for sure knew I wanted to do interaction design. Mobile was becoming a thing, you know, like the iPhone um, was released um, right before I went to graduate school. And uh, I knew that that was going to be like a thing. Like I remember when I got my iPhone, I like conned my mom into it because I was like a poor grad student and I got my other my other friend in grad school to like you know go out to dinner with us and like talk up how Mm. much it helped her around the city of New York yeah and my mom was like hey I'll like help you pay for this knew I wanted to get into interaction design but I didn't know what I wanted to exactly to do and I had already done enough design roles by the time that I'd gone to graduate school, which was, I think, really helpful for me. There were kids in my grad program who had gone straight from undergrad to graduate school without a gap of, like, working, and they struggled because they hadn't seen different roles of design that could be, you know, a possibility, but they also just didn't understand kind of, like, what would professionally be expected of them. Um, And so when I left my master's program, the one thing I knew is that I had worked a lot of um, a wide range of jobs, some of which I loved and some of which I strongly did not love. And so I knew that I wasn't going to take a job after grad school. Like I did not throw all this money. Like Parsons gave me a little bit of a scholarship, but not much at all. I knew that I wasn't just going to take any job, like that I really wanted a job that I loved. And so after grad school, I freelance for about, I think, 10 months um, before I landed at New York Magazine. And what attracted me to New York Magazine, I mean, other than it's the magazine that Milton Glaser established, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like one of the godfathers of design, it was that they had a burgeoning and strong digital team. And I knew that that was that like kind of happy medium for me, like being in a place that really understood kind of classic graphic design, you know, the content that the magazine put out was content that I wanted to read. Like I was passionate about their product. Um, And the people that I worked with were so smart. And the best part of it was that I was surrounded by editors and writers and, you know, people that ran the social media team and, you know, the designers and the tech people and the product managers. And that was really unique for me because I had worked previously at places where I only worked with engineers and I only worked with product managers, or maybe I worked with an account executive, but that's not like being with other creatives and writers are like so creative. And so you know, the things that I would have to do at New York Magazine were really fun to me. Like editors would come, I would do a mix of editorial design and classic product design. But when I was doing editorial design, editors would come to me and they'd be like, we want to put, you know, pop stars are all walking out of the house without pants on. We want you to (laughs) 
pants on pop stars and I got to like decoupage pants onto pop stars <laughs> or they'd be like, we want to chart how the characters on True Blood are having sex. Can you come up with like sex icon set? And I'd be like, yes, that's so fun. <laughs> And it was always so collaborative, and I had such an amazing and supportive, like, mentorship crew there, people who I'm still in contact with today. And so those were all the things, like, because I had worked before grad school, I knew I wanted, like, I wanted people to teach me um, so that I wasn't becoming stagnant. And, you know, like, my art director, my creative director, my coworkers there, like, they all taught me so much. I thought I knew about type. And then, like, my old art director would come running around a corner and be like, um, I saw that graphic, and um, the way that you tracked type, um, can we have a conversation about it? And it would be like, <laughs> I, you know, mistracked. Instead of tracking Verlag out at 20%, I had tracked it out at 10%, and he could see. And I'd be like, Andre, how could you see that? Right. You know, but that's sort of, like, you know, education you can't get school that I knew I had had that in small bits before professionally, but I really wanted to work with talented people. Like I had a former coworker who, this was back when Google Plus was one of the social icons you had to do in your icons. And he was like, look how you did your Google Plus icon and look how I did mine. <laughs> and then he had like four Bezier curves on that and I had like 20 and like mm. it was a hot yeah, And so I was really purposeful out of school to make sure that it hit all of these things like, you know, great coworkers, um, interesting challenges, was in the digital space, but still had a respect, you know, for like true design, native people who weren't just in the tech org who I could interact with. And from there, like I got my job at Twitter through a tweet in my timeline, like, which is the most Twitter story. Right. And so it was really organic after that. Um, and I'd say having worked at a few big places, like that starts, I hate that it's a thing, but I do think that there are people who will, you know, call you up about a job just having seen where else you've worked before. Mm-hmm. Um, don't think it should be that way um but I'm not gonna lie has helped me you know in my career I recently had something like that happen where a guy who's working with um Toyota right now and he had seen some of my work on Dribble, and like we have no connection whatsoever but he's like I saw your work on this and I saw that you worked with this person he's like do you know them and I'm like yes and he's like I know you I'd work great with you I'm like this is like bizarre like connections that you make with other people really do um, stand out whenever people are looking to build a team. So just keep that in mind, everyone listening. Make good impressions on any person that you interact with because it can last a lifetime. Yeah. And I would say that I'm more comfortable with than like, oh, you went to this school or you worked at this company. Like that you've worked for someone, someone else respects and admires. Um, I'm like, okay and feel like clean about that and I agree with you 100% like my relationships are 100% what's gotten me where I'm at um, both in like advice and mentorship but also connecting me to other roles and opportunities and so if I had like any advice to give young Jen it would be like to really know the importance of that.
when I was fresh out of college and also during college, I did some internships, getting some extra education that way. Um, so I can relate to you as far as like not really knowing which path to take until you're exposed to it. Because when I first started out, I was really into packaging and until I started working at a packaging company and it was all that I had to work on, that's when I realized that was really what I was passionate about. So then I got into website design and development and realized that I didn't really like doing those as much either, mainly just the coding part. So then I was like, okay, let me try mobile development because since I'm into apps. Um, but what I've learned is that I just enjoy the process of creating products in general. But when it comes to coding it, I don't enjoy coding full time, maybe editing a little bit of code here and there if it helps the developer understand how to create what I've designed for them. But like the mo- the part I have the most fun with is the user research behind why we're creating the product. Last time we talked for a short amount of time, we talked about how you were working as a lead UX designer at Amazon. And I saw now that you're recently starting a new job at Google Nest as a staff designer. So what led you to decide on this new journey? Amazon and working there was great for me. I had come in um, to Amazon having worked really only on one other hardware software product, which was the Twitter mirror, which is like a photo installation booth for celebrities on the red carpet, but they're also in MLB stadiums. But I'd never really worked on software designed specifically for hardware. And Amazon was like such a great education for me. I When I left Twitter, I had told my boss, I kind of just want to be stupid again. (laughs) Like, I just want to really like learn something that I have no clue about, but I have enough, you know, tools in my designer toolbox to totally not just face plant immediately. Um, And so Amazon taught me about voice design, about like using different modalities in, in addition to voice to design constraints about hardware Um, that it was like, I mean, this is really the space that I have, you know, you're kind of finding that user research is like that side of design is your happy place. I'm really learning that like working across devices is my happy place. That had been my role at Amazon. My former boss, speaking of relationships at Twitter, um, had left Twitter to go run the Google Nest team. And she was just really one of like the best managers that I had ever had in terms of really opening me up and raising me up. And what I mean by that is at a certain level of seniority, yeah, you can like design things, you can communicate your designs, you can art direct to people. Um, But she really realized, oh, we need to figure out how to amplify and magnify you, how to like raise you up and scale you. And that was such an interesting and amazing growth opportunity for me. She put um, three designers under me that I was art directing across timelines and tweets. Um, But also her style was just amazing. Like she was focused on you as a whole human. Like she, I think this comes from the fact that she's also like a nutritionist and wellness coach, like as a human herself, a whole human outside of just her work. And so she just supported me so much, gave me opportunities, supported me um, financially in terms of making sure that I was compensated appropriately within my salary band, mm-hmm. especially 
relation to other men. Yeah. And so when I was trying to figure out how do I grow at Amazon without moving to Seattle, which um, felt like not an opportunity for me because my family is, like I mentioned, in Sacramento, which is like an hour drive from San Francisco. Kate was like, well, Jen, you know, I've always wanted you to come work with us. And at Google Nest, especially because they about a year and a half ago, almost two years now, um, that Nest moved from being an, a bet within Alphabet to being a part of the Google Home and hardware team. Mm-hmm. And so um, they had merged together. The Nest Hub product is like, you know, kind of the next generation of that merger. It's, it's an awesome um, smart display for your kitchen, living room, or your bedroom. It's got a screen on it. And so they had gone through that merger, and because they had become more, like, googly, um, had the opportunity to also set up a studio in San Francisco. And that had always kind of been one of those things that I had questioned. Can I do a commute on a bus down to the South Bay every day? I live in the city. Um, and so all of the stars, like kept aligning like amazing manager proven track record of growing me and supporting me you know like I wouldn't have to you know like move in fact my desk like the Amazon building and the Google building are like two blocks away from each other in San Francisco so I like to say I moved my you know seat by two blocks um (laughs) So, you know, it's like that happened. Um, The role was still in the same problem space that I knew was this like exciting thing for me working across different devices in the home. And because of that merge, um, Nest and the UX that Kate owns, Kate Freebaron owns as a um, UX director is a wide range of things from Chromecast, um, which plugs into the TV to the smart screens, the Nest Hub and the Hub Max, to the cameras, you know, to the locks, you know, and so it's whole home cross-device design, which is similar to what I've been doing at Amazon. And so I, you know, I really, it was a hard decision for me to leave Amazon because I, you know, even though my team was in um, Seattle, like, I was very close to them. We went through a whole process of creating a design system from scratch together and that kind of in the trenches work really bonds you. Mm. And so I told them, like, I was like crying. I was like, I'm sorry to my manager. Like it was just something I couldn't say no to. And then who knows I could, I'm always somebody who believes I can try something and hate it, Mm -hmm. but I can't not know or have this like, what if narrative because my mind is so narrative based that I could spin this entire sliding doors, alternate life for me that I'm, go and try this at Google Nest. It feels like the right thing, but you know, who knows what, what I'll be saying a year from now, but I have, I have strong, strong confidence, especially um, in Kate and her management style is just impeccable. Let's take a short break. Did you listen to this episode before it launched? My email club members are the only people who get access to this behind the scenes information. They're the first to know when I post a new blog post, launch new products, and I also share clips of the next podcast episode. This weekly email is a way for you to see the behind the scenes of what new things are coming to UI Narrative. I also share my weekly UI UX inspirations, tips, and challenges. So you get to see what my creative process is like each week. So this next episode is about, <laughs> oh wait, I can't tell you. You have to join the UI Narrative email club to hear more. 
you can join at uinarrative.com slash email club. That's uinarrative.com slash email club. I have a lot to tell you, so I can't wait to talk to you soon. When it comes to personal development, I'm always excited when I start a new project, especially in an industry that I haven't worked with because of the new perspectives, experiences, and the relationships that you gain from it. So what do you most look forward to with this new role? So there's a couple things. One is um, I'll be reporting into an awesome woman named Rachel Bean. She helped co-found Material Design. And so having an awesome power lady chain of women who are just impressive, thoughtful, really creative senior women who can mentor me is like, when does that ever happen in your life? And so that is an opportunity that I'm so excited to learn from, you know, especially as somebody who does like platform design and Rachel's experience on material. I want to, there are so many questions. She is just ill prepared for me to roll in with, but I've got them (laughs) and I will just be grilling her at all times. Part of why I said yes to this job was because it was across so many different devices. And that's similar to my role at Amazon, where I'd been designing for across every Alexa enabled device, more or less. What's exciting to me is the because Nest started as, you know, like the thermostat and then grew into the cameras and then grew and grew and grew, um, they always had a grounding in the home as a space. And I think that's really like one of the most intimate places you can design for when you think about it. Because a mobile phone, it enters the home, but it's a liminal device. It goes between the home and the public space. And same with like a laptop, you know, designing for web experience and stuff. You could be at work, you could be at the airport, you could be in your home, but it's not like a 100% home device. That I think what's really interesting to me is really digging into the home, especially in the so many different ways that the home exists. You know, there's not just one home yeah. for any. And when you think of the international markets that um, Google and Nest are in, you know, like a home in Japan is different than a home in San Francisco, which is different than a home, you know, in Dayton, Ohio, which is different than a home in, you know, Bangalore, India. And so like just the wide range of like, um, home spaces that I'm going to need to investigate to put um, to partner with our user researchers and learn about what makes it different. You know, what are the societal constraints about, you know, what people expect in terms of privacy in the home that differs between markets? You know, um, what's different about the different dynamics, you know, that people have because, you know, multi-generational families mm-hmm. all living under one roof is mm-hmm. becoming a trend in the U.S. Like, how does that now change how we design for our devices? How does, you know, millennials not getting home ownership until later, you know, change? Like, you know, a bunch of single people all living within one home together. And how do you design for all of that? And so I think what's so interesting is just it's like doing high altitude chess in 4d (laughs) like (laughs) the complexity on complexity is just a mental challenge that i am so excited to dig into and that's the thing about 
working in the home and in um, with devices that have so many different modalities like voice, they have touch input, they have five-way or remote input, you know, they have keyboard input, like all of these devices have so many different ways to interact with them that we're at the beginning. Like it's like designing in mobile in like 08 is like designing in like cross device experience, multimodal experiences right now. You've had success getting into fortune 500 companies like New York times magazine, Twitter, Amazon, and Google nest. What advice do you have for designers looking to get into a fortune 500 company? Follow what you love about a product. Like I'm working on these products at these large companies, not because it's a large company, although I'm not going to lie that my like compensation and my quality of life is like very lovely at a large corporation. That is very true. But the thing that I would say is if you're, if you want to join a fortune 500 company, make sure you're passionate about what they're building or what part of it that, you know, you can be passionate about. Um, I know not everybody has that luxury. You know, a lot of us don't have financial freedom to just follow our passions. Um, And so if you're just strategically trying to get into a large company to like, you know, change your wealth trajectory and change the trajectory of your, you know, the intergenerational wealth trajectory of your family, I would say what companies are looking for are for people who are very curious and have what's called a growth mindset in that they're always willing to grow and change because I mean, the tech industry in the past, like 15 years ish that I've worked on, it has changed so dramatically. I mean, even in the past five years, the, the echo taking off and becoming like voice becoming an, a modality that people want to interact with. That is like new and designers have the ability to grow and to change with this like very rapid pace are going to be more desirable than designers who are like, nope, I know my one way of doing it. And that's just, I'm going to keep on using my hammer, (laughs) you know, like getting other tools in your toolkit. I'd say um, if you really strategically just want to go after a fortune 500 company, what you mentioned about like networking, a lot of companies have events And they do events in like other cities outside of the Bay Area, um, especially as, you know, tech is becoming woke to the fact that there is indeed a wealth of talent outside of, you know, the cities in the Bay Area. There's a ton of events that you can attend. Like even if you go to Eventbrite and search the name of that company, you might be surprised how many events um, that they're having. I'd say the other part of the relationships um, and like going to those and meeting and talking with people and asking, you know, genuine inquisitive questions um, is tapping your own network for that. Like maybe if you're young, your parents have somebody who, even if they work in sales, what people never tell you is if you cold apply, like if you just go to fortune500company.com and you go to their jobs page and you just click on that application link, you're put into a pool with everybody else. But if you just know somebody on the inside, even if they're not a designer, 
if they work in sales, if they work in user services and support, like no matter what their role is, that now puts you into an internal referral pool for you to now be like bumped up in terms of like a recruiter actually, you know, reaching out to you about a job opportunity. And I would say like go on LinkedIn and see who are recruiters for these companies because recruiters um, for these large companies are hungry for new talent. Um, they Their whole job is based around like, oh yeah, I can find somebody to fill that role. And so I know people um, who have got their roles at, you know, very large Fortune 500 companies through just finding a recruiter who, you know, fast track them and put them through. I, I understand that people like need to make money and the amount of money to be made right now in big tech is substantial. I would say first start with like, what are the products you love? You know, if you come home every night and turn on your Apple TV, like that is a product that you could probably passionately talk about and probably talk about what you don't like about their service and what could be improved. You know, you're like, oh, I just wish this thing did X or like, you know, what happens to me is I'm constantly doing this and it's such friction for me to actually get to do that, that it feels like a real opportunity. And those are things like real passion for the product are things that as somebody who has um, interviewed a lot of potential candidates, something that I'm looking for in addition to their technical skills and their craft. I've gotten that question a lot and from people listening and I, I can't personally answer that a hundred percent just because I've mainly worked at startups and I've worked at one big company, but it wasn't considered a fortune 500 company. So I know a lot of listeners are going to be really happy to hear that that question was answered, um, even though I know it wasn't a listener question, but I figured it would be something that they would want to hear. So thank you for that. Of course. So you've gotten experience with working on the Alexa product at Amazon. What challenges have you faced when it comes to accessibility design for voice design products? Yeah, I would say that's, that's a funny question to me because voice to me um feels like one of the first times i mean i get that there is a whole population of people who are um deaf or have um, auditory challenges but voice was the really one of the first times that i felt like i was truly going beyond just like alt text on images and kind of baseline accessibility Voice is one of the most accessible things out there. And I'd say it's pretty accessible because you need a high amount of tech literacy in order to interact with products and a high amount of baseline literacy. Like there's a lot of writing and words and not everybody in the whole world, like we're in North America, not everybody in the whole world actually has that ability to read, you know, or and being able to talk and speak is something that almost everybody can do. You know, there are people who have had, you know, different um, challenges either from birth or that have been situationally acquired throughout their lives where they don't have access to their voice. By and large, it's much more accessible than any of the technologies that we have had before. And so 
you know, Tony, you asked like voice and accessibility, what are the challenges? Mm -hmm. I found that it's made me a better designer. So for example, um, when I was at Amazon, we had a product called the Echo Show family. There's a series of screen-based devices that act like an Echo, the original kind of Pringles can uh, design. And what was purposely done was when you because you can use your voice from anywhere, so you could shout, Alexa, what's on my shopping list? And on the Echo Show, we would put the type size really large. For a while, other designers around the company and you know externally would be like, are you guys crazy? Why is that type so big? Like, have you guys seen a modern website or a modern like, mobile app? Like, that shopping list is, like, gargantuan. And you're like, yeah, but a customer, because they can use their voice and shout, may be like seven feet away. And accessible-wise, like at Amazon, we did a lot of um, human factors research to make sure that type was readable by a given distance. Um, Now, what's interesting is like the future that we're marching to where we can know the exact distance you are and maybe dynamically display that type. You know, so that if you are closer, it's a smaller list. Or maybe if you're interacting with touch, so we know you're within arm's reach, we can put it at a more appropriate size. Like, that's kind of the interesting future of it. But I would say what voice has really challenged me to do is really become a super accessible designer, um, even more than I was before. And I I championed a lot of accessibility things at Twitter. Um, We... One of our designers, David Benningfield, had, um, you know, accessibility experts come on site to teach us as designers. So we weren't trying to have to learn this on our own. You know, they would give tools and tricks, um, you know, uh, things that people with low sightedness challenges have, um, people who like have more hard of hearing challenges have. And really to understand that everyone's going to interface with someone who has either some sort of you know accessibility challenge and so as designers like voice is just another tool that you have in your toolkit and that's those are some of the more heartwarming like customer stories we would hear at amazon is like you know people who were low-sighted had low-sighted challenges being like voice has really allowed me to interact with technology and be a part of like world that i never that i was kind of shut out from and i think Interesting as we start thinking about this are okay well how do we let all of these like voice is just one of those aspects how do we use all of the senses that people have and how do we let them use that to interact with technology now like I feel like voice has really begged that question of the industry and we're at like a really exciting point when it comes to like really making sure that we're being inclusive you know that we're understanding people's literacy rates we're understanding their different um, physical disabilities that might they might have. And that's what's exciting for me. I think it's awesome that y'all were also provided that education on site. Because, I mean, everyone getting into voice design, especially if you haven't worked on a product like that, how would you know until you start to interact with it? Because um, it's not something that you, you normally see like a class on or like, a, you know, education and just like general education on that. So 
I think it's cool that y'all actually had education on site for that. It seemed like it was a learning process for all of you on the team of learning how the users were responding to that, like things like needing to increase the text size and people in general, like not being able to interact with tech, but now they have that possibility of being included in products because of voice design. Yeah, well, I will say voice design has been a thing for a while. Um, It's most classically been in what's uh, IVR, like phone trees, where like you call up Chase Bank and it's like, oh, you know, press one for this or, you know, the more natural language ones where it's like, you can say associate or I need to deposit money. Um, And so there is a cohort of designers that had been working in that space. And those are the people that have been teaching all of the people who are kind of working in voice design now. Mm -hmm. Um, We're all learning from all of those like people that really had, you know, they didn't have a screen. It was always over the phone, you know, or it was like in really limited ways that they were doing voice design. Like the amount of debt we owe to them in the voice community, I don't think it's talked about enough. I think, you know, people just think, oh, chat bots spun up and then Echo Show spun up or Echo spun up and then we had voice design. And it's like, no, well, you know, even back to like, some of the OG technologists at Bell Labs and at Xerox Park who were imagining the futures. They just didn't have the computing abilities or, you know, the technology um, or the like kind of market shift around like acceptance of it. Um, But when you look back to what we're, what I'm in particular doing now with like multimodal design, it is building on the legacy of so many other people who have really been setting the patterns. Like, The phone tree designers, they have such strong patterns for you to learn. Like, you know, Amazon had this, a whole um, voice academy that you could take where you, you know, they would teach you like customers can only keep about three things in a list in their head. So when you're giving them options, like after three, pause and ask if they want to know more or understand that it's hard for them to hold that all cognitively in their mind. And so like those cognitive design principles we learned from those like IVR designers and those like voice designers that had been doing it. I'm talking like 20 years they've been doing it. And without any of the, oh, you're a cool voice designer kind of like cachet that I feel like is happening now. So I imagine with those like grandfathers of voice design, they already had kind of like their own design system that was working for them within voice design. Um, A lot of companies are starting to move towards agile methodology to push out products faster. And with this change, the need for design systems um, is rising up. So I'm wondering, like, how has using a design system helped you in your work process? I've helped build design systems. So you're kind of like asking the cobbler about shoes here. (laughs) I have a It's really what's really interesting to me about design systems right now is this kind of a double-edged sword of design systems that um, this conversation that's happening right now um, in the industry where I feel like people are like, design systems, A, are just fact and the future. That feels like one camp. They're like, nobody should be recreating buttons ever. Like, let's free designers up to think about like larger, like the problems they're solving, what the user need is, what the goals the user are having what challenges they're facing what friction that they you know like there's one camp that's in that world 
Um, and what's interesting now is to kind of hear this other design systems counter argument of design systems are limiting, mm -hmm. you know, design systems aren't enabling designers to be creative. They just go to like their toolbox and they see a hammer. So they use a hammer, even though like creating a whole new tool might be the solution for them. And that to me is like a really interesting kind of counterpoint to, I feel like we, with the success of things like material design, you know, Salesforce lightning, IBM's design. So there's a lot of, a lot of large companies using design systems with that kind of rise. There's always a counter narrative that will come up. Um, and this counter narrative, I think is healthy for us to question like, you know, do we just need kind of foundational things like, you know, a grid, a type scale, like how much componentry or Lego blocks or Lego kits do we need? And I don't think I have an answer for that. For me, I know that creating systems is a really key thing to help open up designers and product people to quickly get out what they want to get out. Um, but at the same time, I am always a stop potster and instigator. And I do believe we should question um, at what point will design systems inhibit us from building what we want to build. But I'm a big believer in like nobody should be recreating that button or like that header or that nav bar. Like, please, no. <laughs> there are bigger the fry and a lot of times when I see people's products it's not the UI that I want to change it's like what problem are you really solving here you know how are you really helping your customers achieve their goals more than it is anything about the visuals I mean I have eyes and so I, I can see when visuals are failing but usually visuals failing or someone using the wrong button is actually not biggest fish to fry. I definitely agree. Like I've been in both situations of currently right now working with a client who wants to build out a design system for a product that's one year old. Um, and then previously for a company that's um, has several products and they already have a design system and it's become a process of things looking more templated. So they have the, the issue of there not being enough like creative, um, flexibility as they want um so it it's an inter it is interesting seeing that like conflict of companies that want one but then companies that feel like why do we have this again yeah and that's the thing is like everything is contextual in design including your design system and the company that you're operating within and so if you are a small startup is that really what you need a design exactly. system right now <laughs> You know, but like the other company you mentioned, like having several teams being a little bit larger, you know, having more competition where you do need to like iterate quickly, like these are all things. And so if your audience members haven't uh, read any of Nathan Curtis, he writes that medium um, series, I think it's called Eight Shapes. He is like um, a large design systems advocate. He um, writes a lot of really interesting things about this dynamic, as well as um, Miss Gina, as I like to think of her, <laughs> Gina Ann on uh, Twitter and Medium. Um, both of them are like very prolific and sort of sharing kind of the 
the highs and lows, the when it's right of a design system. Let's take a short break. Have you ever received the bad feedback on your mobile app designs? Yeah, me too. I know how much it sucks to receive negative feedback on a design I've worked so hard on. And I still reflect on the first time my work was called ugly over seven years ago. I was determined to become a better designer, so I created a grading system to see just how bad I was. And once I graded myself, I realized where my problem areas were and began to focus on improving them. Seven years later, and I'm still using this system at my corporate job for every project. Since I've started using this grading system, I'm able to have the confidence in knowing I presented my best work to my clients and my boss. I created this layout grading system to help you find clarity on how to decipher feedback and improve your designs. In this guide, we go over industry-tested best practices that I use in my day-to-day -day and reveal where your problem areas are. Then we proceed with action sets on how to improve your designs. You have the power to change negative feedback into something positive. Visit uinarrative.com slash grading system to start improving your designs today. That's uinarrative.com slash grading system. I'm super excited to share the methods that helped me turn my designs into something exceptional and I can't wait to see it do the same for you. Um, so I'm gonna switch gears. You were part of creating a community for women in UX design at Twitter during your time there. What common problems have you seen with diversity in the UX profession? So at Twitter, we had started as women in UX, um, and within, I think, a year and a half, had moved to being diversity in UX because a large part of women <laughs> were intersectional, and just thinking about women alone, like that is one of the problems of diversity in tech right now is only focusing on women when often your women are women of color, women who are veterans, women who are on the LGBTQI plus, you know, space. Like, women exist probably mostly in intersectionality. It's really only white women, to be honest, who don't have that kind of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And even then, they could be white and gay. Like, yeah. you know, like, this is like a medium post I've been debating about writing. I've been if what we're doing in tech right now by having like a black employee network, you know, a veterans network, a, you know, um, disabled allies network, uh, you know, all of these different groups. If what we're doing is like gerrymandering mm -hmm. in terms of there will never be one like solid enough block to make meaningful that we've like, Segment, we've drawn these maps and separated everybody out so that no one voting block like can really change the things that are broken. And part of me understands that separation in that like that community that gets created um, is really important. Like that was one of the best things that I think happened when we created a diversity in UX group is we created strong community spaces for people to talk about what was happening. And often when you, you know, are a Latina at work and you like have people saying like crazy racist things to you, like just another Latina and being like, um, can we talk about this is really comforting that like that moving past that feeling of am I being gaslit to like no homegirl, like it's actually happening. 
um, is really comforting. And so I get why we're doing it in terms of that community and that like, you're not crazy solidarity. Um, but at the same time, I wonder what would happen if we joined together, like what, you know, we would probably be the majority then would we be able to sway things so that, you know, we would have a stronger voice. I've really been wondering about this last one, but I'd say that anything that people can do to organize with other people that they feel affinity towards to change things that they feel are wrong, that they are seeing is a good thing. And so at this point, I'm kind of like, well, gather how you want to gather, change how you want to change. Like, it just, we can't keep going down the status quo. It does feel like gerrymandering at times. This is something I've actually struggled with when I first started the podcast because I, wa- I knew I wanted to speak like specifically to women that look like me, black women, so they can see if I'm doing it, you know, it's possible for you too. But it's like, I also wanted to speak to women in general, but then I was like, wait, but I also wanted to speak to women of different races. So it's like, it, I ended up just making it open to everyone so that way no one felt like they're excluded from what I have to say. And because my main purpose was just getting the information out to anyone that's interested in, you know, getting into this profession of UI UX design. But it's it's always been that, like, the balance of, it's like, I know I, I want to do my part as far as making sure people understand that we're underrepresented in this industry, but there's a lot of factors that are involved with that as far as, like, education from when you're young and not having the resources provided to you and so on and so on. It's something that's always, I feel like, is going to be, a topic. And I feel like as long as people are continuing to speak about it, then things will continue to get better. What types of questions do you think we need to be asking about the products we're making to make sure that we're being inclusive when it comes to specifically diversity? Well, I feel like part of it is looking around the room and saying, do we have diverse representation? I get that diverse representation is not always visible. Um, but that is always the first check I do whenever I'm building something. I'm like, because if someone's in the room asking the right questions, like that is step one is having like that right group of people. Then it's like, okay, if you are that person entering the room, I think you, you bring your lived experiences and what you've experienced and then where you fail, where you don't have enough diversity yourself making sure that you're bringing in people who can ask those questions, whether it's through user research and making sure that the users you're testing with aren't like the same cohort of users to like, okay, do we have experts who like, even if they're not employed in this company, who could come in and advise us on this? Companies are like actually realizing this now is diversity is, is helpful to their business because their customers are now a wide range of people. Their customers look like that Benetton ad from my era. (laughs) And so they're starting to realize like, oh, this isn't just, we don't just need to bring in people of color to like work here. We actually need to do it because a lot of our customers are now people of color, you know? And so that's where I'm like, oh, well, if you don't have that diversity in your company, I'm sure you've got it in your customer base and bringing that customer base in to tell those truths. Like 
you know, nobody can argue with that quote of the customer who comes in and says like, this is like wrong for these reasons, or this makes me feel this way. I think that is probably some of the stuff that I would look at and think about as like ways to make sure that we're not, you know, going to release highly offensive product. But I'd say the other thing too, and this is like that hard side is how do we not always put the onus on the people of color to yeah. something, you know, because mm-hmm. it becomes pretty taxing. And, you know, there are studies now that say um, it can be like career detrimental to constantly that person bringing it up. It's always this like, okay, you want to be the, you want to be the voice. You want to be asking these questions at the same time. You're like sitting there in these rooms. Like, why am I the only one asking? This? Yeah. You know? <laughs> And so I feel like the really where like, you know, meaningful shift will meaningful shift will happen. And that's also where like businesses will make more money, which is their bottom line. I want to get into your side project called Gen Cotton Design, which is a ceramics line handmade by you guys. So you got to check out her collection of pieces on GenCottonDesign.com. It is top notch, like the type of dishware that you see on there is five-star Michelin restaurant. Aww. And you recently had an open studio. Congrats on that again. Uh, so how did you get introduced into ceramics? I know you said you were doing some of that um, when you were younger. When did you pick it back up again and decide to create your own studio? Yeah, so I um, did hand building as a kid. It's funny because when I was in grad school, I ended up doing my thesis in clay um, in ceramics. And part of like your grad school thesis, you have to talk about your impetus, um, like why you did this, why you started in clay, where did it all come from? And so I interviewed my mom and I was like, yeah, mom, like, why did you put me in all these clay classes and stuff? And she's like, it's just what you wanted to do. It's not because I saw any talent in <laughs> Let me be clear. And I love my mom's realness in that. This is, again, why I'm like, how did nobody tell me to get into design when I was always doing art and making stuff as a kid? But um, when I went to college, my best friend had taken um, a ceramics class her freshman year and was like, no, this is amazing. She had done it in Hawaii because she really understood where to go to college. And she sent me in like cold DC my um, her set of ceramic tools to use and was like, you should really sign up for a class. I think you would love it. And so I took a wheel throwing class. Classes were five hours long, twice a week. Um, so you'd be in the studio all the time. Um, and it was just so fun, like something tactile to do. It's something that gets you out of your mind, especially because the clay will do what the clay wants to do like you can control it but only to a certain degree and that is a really humbling thing to learn as a young person and I just really loved it after I left college found a studio um, in Virginia then when I moved to New York I found an awesome space out there I had started teaching by then which was really fun so in New York was really when I realized really loved making porcelain, both for the like historic, you know, it's got a legacy in China, but originally where porcelain's from. I really realized I loved making functional dishware for the home. I've made like plate that charges your cell phone, kind of looking about out at how the cell phone has become a part of the dinner set. Like when you go out to dinner, it's like 
plate, fork, knife, and someone puts their cell phone down, right? It's like <laughs> a part of the dinner set. And Sounds so, about right. <laughs> as a ceramic artist, I was, um, you know, interested in um, ceramics being imbued with technology. And so I have a bunch of my own ceramic art that's like that. But I also just love making functional pottery. It's just like design where like surrounding myself with other makers um, who could teach who I could learn from, you know, we could co-inspire each other has really enabled me to, you know, have this as like a side profession. And so, you know, every year I make enough to pay my rent for my studio and all of my supplies um, and then have a little extra on the side. Next, I want to get into listener questions asked on Instagram stories some weeks ago, if any of you guys had questions for a designer at Amazon well, she's here and ready to answer your questions, and I can't wait to get through all of your questions in this episode. So I'd like to do some listener mention shoutouts first, because I can't get through every single question, sadly, but here's some mentions. Um, IOUB underscore F99, C Perry Creative, WHHH, what? <laughs> Jimmy Kaltoff. Um, so this first question comes from Twitter from Daniel Abudu. He said, what do you love to see in portfolios of job candidates and designers in general? It depends what I'm hiring for, right? Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing is making sure that your experience or your, even if they're side projects, match what people are looking for. So if someone is looking to hire somebody who is really good at doing design systems, but is also visual, like any way that you can show that I'm really, I'm a designer who's open to like you showing me a side project as a thing. I don't think your experience necessarily needs to have been at another company. I think I'm really with a portfolio, just quickly checking, is this person somebody that we should bring on site? And so while I know case studies are like a very big deal um, right now, oftentimes people don't have a lot of time. They're like short strapped hiring managers or they're a senior designer who's been asked to look through a portfolio, um, you know, to quickly see, should we do a phone screen or should we bring them on site that I think you should also understand the context of the person looking through it, that they may not have, you know, all day to read your beautifully well and crafted thing you know oftentimes when I see a really long case study I'll read like a paragraph or two just to know can this person write you know or where did they start did they start with the customer problem okay they did all right check let's just bring them on site you know or let's do a phone screen with them I I really feel like that is something we may not necessarily be talking enough about is if we're designers who are focused on the user, then understand that the hiring manager, the recruiter, the senior, those are all your users. Great, great explanation of behind the scenes of what it's like as the user reading through these portfolios. Um, the next question is from Instagram. G-H-A-N-E-S-H said, what's the most impactful product you've pushed live? When I worked at Twitter, which is a whole chapter that I could write a memoir on, uh, <laughs> but won't because I respect NDAs that I signed. Um, I worked on a lot of um, influencer products, things for celebrities. 
Um, but one of the things that we did was we created the first mentions filtering of the notifications timeline. And we cre created the first tools to really help people um, who were in the limelight and really under attack to understand and be able to like turn on a quality filter and remove those low quality things. I then later in my career worked on bringing those to the general public um, and worked on things like hiding replies in conversational threads so that any nasty replies weren't automatically by default shown. And there is a lot of like personal guilt that I do have sometimes about working at Twitter just because like for a platform that has created Black Lives Matter and the Arab Spring, it has also created a lot of anger mobs um, and a lot of negativity. And I'd say impactful, impact wise, I'm super proud of the tools um, that I helped create at Twitter to help people who are really combating from the everyday person to the influencer really dealing with like something that nobody should have to deal with. This next question is from MM Brand Consulting. They said, how does a beginner go about solving complex problems? Um, starting with understanding what is the problem and detangling that problem until it's at least one thread that you can look at. Because I don't think you can solve it until you really understand what is the problem. So is it a, you know, one, one A, one B, one C? Is it a one, two, three problem that we're thinking is just one problem? You know, really understanding what that problem is will set you, you will have the tools to solve it once you understand what it is. This next one's from Ish Day Creator. They said, which designing tools do you use and what techniques do you use? Yeah, this is something that I'm like, please, people at Figma, if you're listening, can you start building voice tools into your people? <laughs> um, because people love Figma, and I'm always like, yeah, but I can't actually use it. Like, I use Keynote a lot mm. to do multimodal design prototyping, um, especially when I was working on TV stuff for Fire TV, where it's like I need to be able to have different um, modalities, different inputs, different things available. Um, but, you know, I use Sketch, I've used Figma, um, I've used Envision, like all of the major tools out there. I'm an OG designer, so like Photoshop, I know that the tool we shall not talk about is a tool I've used. Uh, well, I love Photoshop. Photoshop still still um, is worthy. Yes, I agree. But, you know, there's <laughs> definitely, a, that's a divide in the industry. But yeah, whatever helps you solve your problem is the tool you should be using. Thank you guys for asking your questions and remember to follow me on Instagram at UI narrative or Twitter at UI narrative CEO to possibly be featured in the next listener questions. So I like to end the show with a random question completely unrelated to what we've been talking about. And this question actually comes from a listener Jimmy Kaltoff said, would you rather win the lottery or work at the perfect job in Y? Wow. You've got a great listener cohort here. Like, <laughs> um, at this stage in my life, I would rather win the lottery. And here's why. Um, I have worked at a lot of amazing jobs um, that I feel like, you know, I'll be able to tell my grandchildren, like, your grandma used to work here. 
Um, <laughs> that for me, having the freedom to not work um, and to like, if I want to write, if I want to do my ceramics full time, like having that freedom that a lottery win would give me um, is the thing that I would prioritize most right now. Um, but it's because I am sitting on a fortunate experience of having worked at awesome places that, you know, if you had asked me probably 20s Jen probably would have told you the exact opposite story. Like, I just want to work somewhere cool. That would be like the ideal, the dream. Um, and so I know, like, that's why I give you the context of this. Um, but yeah, I'd love to win the lottery. If, if any of her listeners here um, can make this happen. <laughs> At yeah. <laughs> I definitely, I would choose the same winning the lottery. Um, and mainly just because money is the main reason why I haven't been able to travel as much as I would like to. And there's just so many places on this planet that I would love to visit and money would make that possible as far as like going being able to go there and not have to worry about oh can I afford to go to this place and this place or should I you know budget down to only go to this one place like I would have no limitations on just visiting different areas and experiencing different cultures so definitely lottery for me yeah money doesn't buy happiness but it does buy you a lot of freedom Freedom yeah. to travel, freedom to do what you want to do, freedom mm-hmm. to hire someone if you yeah. don't have time to do something. Like, it doesn't buy happiness, but let's not negate what money can help us with. <laughs> I would definitely get a personal assistant. Exactly. <laughs> so where can we connect with you online? Yeah, so like I mentioned, I'm at Jen Cotton, one N, on Twitter and on Medium and on every other service except for Gmail. That is my white whale. Um, I was an OG hotmail holdout, true story. Um, <laughs> and you can find my ceramics at Jen Cotton Design or on my website. You can buy through there, jencottondesign.com. And uh, you can sometimes see my work highlighted in ceramics on the Instagram um, Mission Clay Studios and Clay Room SF. Those handles, both of those will sometimes feature my work, but really I'm most vocal on Twitter. All right, guys, you know where to find her. Um, feel free to tag me at UI Narrative or Jen at Jen Cotton. If you want to ask any further questions about UI UX design, um, we're here for you. You could also tag us in hashtag women in UX. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Jen, and answering all these listener questions. We all appreciate you so much and can't wait to talk to you again sometime soon. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Your questions are so insightful from both you and your listeners. And I love what you're building here. It really feels like you're building a community and I love that so much. So I'm excited to see where you go, you know, to be like one day like back in the day, I used to know Tolu. Like, you know. <laughs> thank you so I'll, much. I'll be dropping you. Mm-hmm. True story. So, uh, thank you so much for your time. I love the quote Jen ended her frontier talk with. Jen mentioned how at the end of every interview, Oprah usually leans in and asks, "How did I do?" Oprah explains what it is that they are really saying in this quote. It's about how did you hear me. Did you see me? And did what I say mean anything to you? That's what everything's about. 
that's what every human is looking for. They're looking to know, are you fully here with me? And that's the quote I want to leave you with today. You can always email me at hello at uinarrative.com or DM me on Instagram at uinarrative or Twitter at uinarrativeco if you have any questions about this episode. And I can't wait to hear from you. Talk to you in two weeks, my friend. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UI Narrative Podcast. If you like what you hear, make sure to show this podcast some love by commenting and subscribing where you listen. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at UI Narrative or Twitter at UI Narrative CO. I also respond to emails at hello at uinarrative.com. Talk to you later. Bye.